Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 41 in our series for 2014. And today's date is Friday the 24th of October. And Leon, what have we got on the menu for this week? Well, we've got a fascinating interview with Eddie Makalani. He's the CEO of Big Commerce, and he's going to be talking about how Big Commerce operates and the opportunities it offers business. And then we're going to have a chat with economist Francis Gray about why the hell are markets so volatile now. But anyway, let's first of all hear from Eddie Makalani. Eddie Makalani, tell us about Big Commerce. You've had some spectacular growth. Tell us about the origins of it and what it's about. Sure. Uh, my co-founder and I, Mitch, we launched BigCommerce in 2009. We, we had a company called Interspire, where we built technology for small businesses, web designers, and freelancers. Um, in about 2007, we launched an e-commerce platform, which we called Interspire Shopping Cart. This was all based on customer demand. Uh, we had a tremendous amount of customer feedback telling us that, you know, we would love for you to build something like this because of the way you build technology and your pricing points and the ease of use. And so we got this idea, and then in 2009, we pivoted the entire company, we rebranded, and we called ourselves Big Commerce. We really wanted to build a global brand, and we felt that, you know, the, 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 the brand name of Big Commerce we can take globally. Uh, so we launched Big Commerce. It's basically uh, an e-commerce platform uh, focused for an SMB and growing businesses and moving, you know, kind of up market and helping fast-growing brands sell online, being able to launch an online store, accept payments, process payments, run marketing campaigns, etc. Everything that everything that any online merchant needs to be able to be successful selling online. What kind of growth have you had? Oh, look, we've been growing at at least you know anywhere between seventy to one hundred percent year on year over the last three or four years since we've launched. Right, and and you are now uh, expanded overseas, haven't you? That's right. We have an office in Austin, Texas, where we have uh, over 200 people. We have sales, support, marketing and finance uh, and some engineering based in Austin, Texas. We also have an office in San Francisco where we have predominantly product, engineering and marketing folks as well. And so where's most of the business coming from? It's global. Um, Our product is very much do-it-yourself. It's very focused on small businesses can get online, you know, you can literally swipe your credit card and be up and running in less than 24 hours. So it's very global. Uh, right now, the majority of our customers are in North America. We're seeing huge traction in uh, Europe and the UK, as well as in Australia, where, you know, the online market is obviously growing and a lot more retailers are going online. So, Eddie, what what sort of services do you offer? Um, you know, the, the whole nine yards or identification of a small business how does it all work yeah absolutely so if you can imagine a small business comes to the big commerce website they put in their name their email address their password and instantly we give them a control panel where they can start uploading products uh, creating the design for their website etc and so if you will we, we we help them create the website component the cataloging component where they can put products our product descriptions, product reviews, etc. And so, if you can imagine, if you've ever shopped online and you've gone to a website where you know you you know you've you've picked the product, you've added it to your 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 um, shopping basket, and then you've checked out and paid for it and received an email, we provide that entire online experience for a merchant. We enable them to do that without any technical experience um, and a very very affordable cost. So you provide the payment gateway. And do you, do you host their website for them? Yeah, we host their entire website. We, we provide them. We don't do the 
payment gateway ourselves, but we work with partners uh, to enable them to do that. And we've got some partners where we can turn around a payment gateway in less than 24 hours. Okay, so this is sort of a PayPal operation type of thing. Yeah, we work with PayPal in Australia. We work with a couple of different brands, including Eway, uh, ANZ Bank, NAB, ComBank, just about everyone in Australia that provides a merchant gateway. So who are these guys that are coming in? There's apparently a, a big wave of smaller businesses that want to get into online commerce, is there? Absolutely. So if you think about, you know, if you, if you go back about five to ten years ago when, you know, e-commerce started to boom, especially in the U.S., the only people who could sell online were those that could afford $100,000 or $200,000 a year in licensing and technology and big development teams and security, etc. And so what we've been able to do is create a new market for small businesses because if you can imagine, now you can set up an online store for less than $100 a month. It's cheaper than your mobile phone bill. And as we're going through the same tra- transition, you know, if you go back 10 years, the people who could afford a mobile phone were only big corporations, and, and over time, the technology becomes democratized and becomes more affordable. And we're going through that same period now with, with e-commerce and the ability to set up an online store. So we're able to take the technology that used to be very complicated, very sophisticated users only, lots of techno, you know, technology skill set needed, and really democratize that and enable small businesses for less than $100 um, for, you know, with no technical skills to be able to sell online. And that's why you're seeing a lot of this trend. And it's also a very attractive way to launch a business. You know, if you want to be selling something and you've got some goods to offer or you manufacture, in the past you either had to find a distrib- local distributor or you had to go into a big brand store or you had to open up a physical presence. And a physical presence can cost you, over, you know, anywhere between 200000 or a million dollars just for your fit-out class setting up an online store, you can have one running in 24 hours. And so that's, I think, another reason why you'll see a lot of small businesses more and more, you know, getting online. So did you actually, uh, there are a lot of small businesses that don't have a clue how to work the uh, technology. Do you actually coach them in this? Do you actually show them how to do it? Absolutely. So first and foremost, we hope our technology is so simple that people can do it themselves. And we've designed it in a way to have, you know, a really strong user experience, really easy to use. We see people that have zero, you know, very limited technical ability. Most, most small businesses now have, you know, pretty strong technical ability in terms of, you know, using Microsoft Office and Outlook and Gmail. And so we take someone with that skill set and the product hopefully guides them through. But at the same time, we have a team that we call our success squad who are exactly that. They're coaches and they'll coach you through the process of one, launching your store, but also making it successful. How do I drive traffic once it's up and running? How do I process shipments? How do I, you know, take payments and so forth? So we have a dedicated team whose sole job is to do that. And the website design, do you offer templates and things like that for them? Absolutely. So we have some very professionally designed templates. We have an in-house team and an outside team that we use of really strong professional designers. You're talking about some of the best, you know, art directors and designers on the planet who've created our themes and they've designed our themes in a way to be reusable, very customizable, so everybody has a unique look and feel. But they've also created in a way that helps with conversion rates. So when someone lands on your web page and your website and your home page, not only is it very appealing for you as a, you know, as a consumer to be able to, you know, get trust and credibility with the bot, with the, the person you're buying from, but it's also a very seamless and easy to use experience. So I'm, you know, checking out a lot easier. I'm adding products to my shopping cart, etc. So we have about 50 to 100 themes that people can select from. We also have the ability for people to use point and click technology just to be able to really customize, edit a theme, change the colors and really make it their own. So what, what sort of pricing have you got? So 
a bloke doing, well, say, making a, some, a lead, lead light artist, for example. Just very small business, but high cost items. What would you, what would you charge them to set them up? Yeah, we have multiple tiered pricing plans depending on the size of a business and their requirements. Uh, so on the low end, we've got a $30 a month plan. It's really, really affordable. People can sign up and get just about everything that they need. On the mid-tier, we have a plan that's about $100 a month. Uh, that's for a growing business, someone that wants some more sophistication. On the kind of upper end of that SMB, we have a $200 plan. Again, it's got all the func- features and functionality of both of our other plans, but some more additional features. Uh, we also have a very high-end plan. We have a plan that ranges between a thousand to five thousand dollars a month, and that's when you get to really sophisticated businesses who are making, you know, five to ten million dollars a year on the platform. And so we're able to cater to an entire journey. What we love and what we're most passionate about is when a small business joins us on the low end and then becomes really successful, and we're able to grow with them, and they're able to grow with us. And uh, you, you have many examples of that. We have plenty of examples of that. We have a store in Sydney called Bicycles Online who started with us not too long ago um, and they went from a very small shop and now they're doing you know, hundreds of thousands if not millions in sales um, and they've become very, very, very successful. They get a website uh, that carries all the metadata so that people can Google for them. Uh, it's a whole package in that fashion. Yeah, absolutely. So it's the entire website, the entire hosting, the entire technology in the background. We also are very proud of our SEO functionality. We've got really, really strong SEO functionality. So you can really customize everything to be very friendly for Google. We pay a lot of attention. A lot of our merchants, you know, set up online with e-commerce and they start ranking very highly in the search engines. It's an area that we spend a lot of time focusing on. Uh, Things like editing title tags, editing the metadata, uh, the ability to have product reviews, a sitemap, and the speed of our websites, they load incredibly fast. Uh, we're very, very focused on speed and performance, and we have an incredible technology team here who's just completely focused on the stability, the uptime, and the performance of your store. So you're not, as a small business, you don't want to worry about that, but you do want to know that it's being taken care of. And the faster your site loads, the more friendly it is for Google. And do you, do you put a lot of time into SEO? As in... We, we as, as a search engine optimization. Yeah, we spend a tremendous amount of um, time and product and engineering resources making sure that our platform is very SEO friendly. So making sure Google can crawl every single uh, in a website of one of our merchants, making sure we're adhering to all the rules that they have, such as you know making sure we don't have duplicate content, making sure we have a sitemap that Google can pick up and see all the web pages, making sure that the web pages are written with the code in a unique way so that you know, it's optimal for Google to be able to crawl every single page. Uh, the speed, again, like I mentioned, um, and then, of course, you know, the mobile friendliness of every web page as we start to see more and more traction in mobile. Is there a difference between certain sectors? I mean, do you, do you have a greater preponderance in one sector over another, or is this across all sectors? It's a great, it's a great question. Um, so we generally see, you know, we play very much horizontal. We see multiple different verticals of using e-commerce. We, we have seen a lot of success in the fashion industry because a lot of the fashion industry, there's a, you know, a ton of really great independent designers who are looking to take their product to market and maybe can't afford to, you know, have a real massive distribution chain. And so we see designers like, for example, Colette Dinigan, who's on the big commerce platform here in, here in, I think she's Melbourne based, a very successful designer using big commerce. Um, and then we see, we also see a lot of the typical, you know, the things that you see selling online, your electronics and your automotive parts, 
um, your baby, you know, your baby goods. We've got a great brand called Four Mums that's become an incredibly successful global brand of e-commerce. And so it's very, you know, wide and varied, but I'm very proud of a lot of the work we do in the fashion industry. And so the fa- would the fashion industry be the biggest drivers of it? You know, it, it is the biggest, but on a very small scale, you know, winning. It's about 16%. Um, of the num- you know of the multiple different verticals, and we have about twenty or thirty different verticals that we cater to. But would that be the largest sector, the fashion? It would be, yeah. And and uh, and retailers, how do they take to it? So, so your conventional bricks and mortar retailers, how do they take to it? Yeah, absolutely. I think every you know conventional bricks and mortar retailer has to have an online presence, right? It's just it's no question that you have to be selling online. The market's going there. Um, consumers are definitely looking for a retailer online, even though they're purchasing in store. And so we see a tremendous amount of success. Some of our most successful merchants are bricks and mortar retailers. As I mentioned, you know, bicycles online, they're called bicycles online. They do a tremendous amount of marketing and lead generation and selling online, but they also have a bricks and mortar presence. And so people can, you know, when you're buying a bicycle, you want to sometimes feel it, you want to sit on it, especially if you've never bought one before. And so that gives you that combined, what we call omni-channel experience. And we've seen a lot of success of omni-channel retailers and e-commerce. And they, and they take to it quite readily? Absolutely. Yeah, it's really easy to set up. It's really easy to install. It's really easy to get up and running. We've got some features and functionality such as a, a merchant, a, a customer can buy a product and then pick it up in store or they can buy it in store. So, you know, they're browsing. And so what, what it helps for a physical presence, it helps people find them, it helps people find them on Google, it helps people find them from, you know, all the different avenues on Facebook, etc. And they can communicate with their customers through email, um, you know, online. And then very quickly, if a customer is interested, we can drive them to either buying online or buying in a physical location. What's the fi- what's, what's your next step for big commerce? Yeah, I, look, our next step is continue to make us clients very, very successful. As I mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we've focused tremendous amount of time and resources for us because we know if our clients are successful and they're making a tremendous amount of money, then we're going to be successful and we're going to make a tremendous amount of money. So our interests are very aligned with our merchants. Um, we're building some technology now. We're going to come out with some really powerful analytics and reporting very soon. Uh, we continue to work on making the product incredibly easy to use. We're also looking at taking the product more and more international and to mock markets outside of just North America, Europe, and um, Australia. We see a lot of opportunity in Asia. We see a lot of you know, opportunity across the world. We think we're in, a, you know, we're in a market that is seeing a huge, tremendous growth globally. Uh, and then finally, we're really starting to grow with our merchants as they continue to grow, we, especially into that you know, 3 to $5 to $10 million in sales. We want to have a platform that caters with them and grows with them as well. Eddie Makalami, thank you very much for your time. All right. I appreciate your time. It's a big business, this big commerce business, isn't it? Absolutely. Great Australian business, and it's global, totally global. And getting bigger with every day. Okay, and now Francis to tell us why the markets are playing yo-yo. Francis Gray, the big issue at the moment is the volatility of the markets. They're up and down. They're all over the place. What are the economic forces driving this? The markets are in therapy. We've been in the Great Recession since 2008. And part of the therapeutic process, because they're slow learners, is that uh, they have these moments when reality intrudes into their uh, ideological framework that has driven markets since 2008. So here on uh, the day of Gough Whitlam's death, what we have is a, is a, a generation who are the opposite of Gough. Gough lived at the end of an economic period of expansion. The markets today live at the end of the period which Gough saw the beginning of, which was 
economic austerity, uh, liberalization, and so on. Now we're looking at a period where inflation is gone, deflation is king, and markets are gradually realizing that is a dominant feature of our times. And as a result, public policy settings will have to change. And we, and we have these panics. And if you look at the, um, you know, the American uh, US bond prices, it's, it's telling the story. The bond prices are rising because they've realized this economy is not lifting. And that's despite what the US Fed has been doing. So how else is that reflected in places like Australia, for example? In Australia, it's reflected in the um, falling commodity prices and, and now the, the collapse in our uh, or weakness in our currency and the weakness also in our uh, major trading partner in China. Because China, in a sense, since 2008, has been carrying the, the, um, the Keynesian fiscal expenditure burden of the world. We will expand and drive up demand for our own economy and because of the virtue of their size they're having an impact on the rest of the world germany is our european analog in their economy their economy is suffering now finally the way that we have also been suffering how are government policies around the world not suited for the current paradigm well i think uh, paul krugman put it delightfully in an article only in the last few days he said if you take a look at the interest rates that are being offered on infrastructure bonds the interest rates being offered to attract investors into those bonds are incredibly low, very, very low. So low that it is a no-brainer. The market is saying, do more infrastructure. We will, we will fund the infrastructure. Uh, you know, they don't need to offer any more than what they are offering to get the money that they need. Um, and if you go to the United States, there is a country in desperate need of infrastructure. Uh, Australia does a better, much better job of managing its infrastructure, but we have whole areas of neglect. And I might add, uh, 100 years ago, when um, we were growing this economy, we grew electricity lines and, and uh, power stations and railways and ports. Now we're in a new era. We need to grow new uh, infrastructure for the economy of the 21st century. The NBN is a fine example of that. But the US seems to be troubled by the fact that there are so many jobless, uh, the fact that wages have not kept up, uh, that wages have actually dropped, that you've got highly qualified people there on next to no, earning next to nothing. Yes, that is absolutely right. That is what happens in an economy which is now at a, a new equilibria. So most of the uh, people who do their economics training are used to the market uh, supply and demand curves. You know, the famous cross where market supply curve crosses the market demand curve. And they think that's an equilibrium in the marketplace. As a result, most of us run around with an attitude that there is one equilibrium out there for the economy as a whole. I think it's clear that economies can settle at different equilibrium points. And this economy, and there's a very strong argument for it, this global economy has settled or is in danger of settling at an equilibrium whereby it will continue to have excess capacity, low demand, and there's no natural driver to push that economy to a better equilibrium where we have higher demand, lower unemployment, and more output in, in the world at large. And, and this, the scenario you just described, Leon, is also the scenario in the UK and Europe, uh, in Japan, uh, and you know, to some extent it's growing in China, but as we've argued before, I think they have a different dynamic. So what kind of policies are needed? We need governments to actually say in a massive economic slowdown uh, that we have now and a massive shortage of demand that you know, governments can step up now and build the infrastructure 
for the 21st century. And I realize that's someone else's slogan, but that's essentially what isn't happening in this market. What we're seeing happen in this, in this political climate and market, what we're seeing is government saying we must run austerity campaigns, absolutely run these austerity campaigns because we can't borrow. We can't afford to do anything. And as a result, they're not building the nations of the 21st century. They're basically rotting the nation of the 20th century by allowing its infrastructure to fall apart. Meanwhile, sitting in bank accounts around the Western world, at least, there are trillions of dollars sitting in bank accounts, earning nothing, doing nothing. And as a result, people are unemployed, businesses have excess capacity, and nothing's happening. What is this infrastructure for the 21st century? Well, that's a very good question. I think we, we can start with our, our, our um, electronic communications networks. You know, ours is not much better than the rest of the world. The US one is, is pretty poor as well. Uh, and for countries like ourselves, we should be at the cutting edge. If you go to Malaysia, you get much better uh, high-speed networks, at least out of Kuala Lumpur, for example. Uh, we should be matching those for all of our countries as a whole. That's the first one. The next one is our distribution grids and power grids, which need massive upgrading and, and changing so that we can actually plug in the new Lego set of renewable energy technologies that are now becoming available, notwithstanding some people's dislike of spinning turbines. You know, they are here, they're available, and they're not being made use of. Uh, and the trends in that market are enormous. We're seeing that, that in, um, say, even battery storage evolving in, in housing. So that's, that's one thing. The next part is um, energy efficiency in buildings. We have a massive stock of incredibly energy, energy inefficient buildings. And uh, those buildings need to be retrofitted. In Los Angeles, they talk about going block by block to improve that, so reduce costs and make money. So these are actually profitable investments to be made. How big a role does renewable energy play in this? I think renewable energy plays a huge role. I mean, it's, it's a bit like going back 100 years ago and saying what role do power stations and electricity grids pay, play in, in transport and um, urbanisation and the whole process of building the 20th century economy. They play a critical role in this one too. You would see renewable energy powering this infrastructure push there's absolutely no doubt about it it, it already can and does in, in, in some in um, a couple of small countries it's already provided all the power at certain times here in australia in south australia it's almost provided all the power on at least uh, one period so far in the recent couple of years uh, and if you look at the modeling from experts in this field they've shown how the united states can actually uh, run most of its power now from renewable sources, has the potential to run most of its power from renewable sources. The main argument being, oh, well, the sun goes down, the wind doesn't blow. They all, always forget that coal st coal-fired power stations and nuclear ones also go down for maintenance. But the, the, the issue that the governments would always come back to you with is we don't have the money for it. No, that's why we have capital markets which are piled up with cash, which you can borrow at 1% interest. If you're the US government, you can borrow at 1%. And so what does that tell you about the projects you're investing in? If you've got a project of the US government that returns 15%, 20%, and you can borrow 1%, if you're a private sector investor, would you do that? Probably you would. And governments are now in that position. With the private sector on the bench, the government has to step up and play the game. And, 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 and it's necessary for our infrastructure to do so. And you ask for uh, infrastructure, you can start with airports as another example, transport as another example, rail transport and so on. Uh, they need upgrading in order to cope with the demands of, 20, of the 21st century. If you look at the UK, in the last, since the recession of 2008, they've added 3 million people to the population of the UK. I don't know where they all came from, but they're there and they need houses, roads and transport. That, that would so governments would actually have to tap into the capital markets to get the money for that. The governments have the potential to do that. They can get it dirt cheap. It makes economic sense to do so. They're sitting on their hands and say, no, it's bad for government to borrow. 
It's not bad for government to borrow. It's not bad for anyone to borrow. It's sometimes unwise to borrow. It's sometimes wise not to borrow. You just got to decide what times you are in. In the times we are in now, it is wise for government to borrow to build the, the future of this uh, economy. So governments need closer links with capital markets and they don't have those at the moment? No, they have the links. They, they lack the ideological framework to actually go and undertake the actions that are required. That's what I mean by the post-Goff generation. They all grew up in a world where excess demand was causing inflation. And now we're in the opposite world. We've got excess uh, supply and very low inflation heading into deflation, if you read The Economist. As a result, it requires the opposite set of policies. It's, it's a dirt moment. Francis Gray, thank you very much. Thank you. So what do you think, Leon? Well, it sounds like we're going to have to get used to a new reality in the markets. Yep, it's going to be up and down. I, I wonder sometimes if this is a reflection of how closely the media and day traders and whatnot look at trends and things. I think so, yes, yes. Okay, now, Leon, the news, what's on? Well, Gary... There was a fascinating report this week from the conference board in the US, and they're saying that in about five years from now, the Chinese economy is likely to transition to a sharply cooler outlook, with GDP expansion expected to come in close to 4% from 2020. So they're going to be back where the rest of us are. That's right, absolutely. And that comes as the latest figures reveal that the Chinese economy grew at 7.3% during the third quarter of 2014 compared with a year ago. The new GDP figures are down from a reading of 7.5% last quarter and the third quarter economic growth rate is the slowest since the first quarter of 2009 when it rose to 6.6%. So the conference board is basically saying China is slowing down and the latest figures are actually suggesting this. Yeah, I think that's right. Well, obviously it is right, but the the political problems behind that might give cause for worry. Yes, in China, there will be political problems coming from that. And of course, it's going to have an impact on the global economy, not to mention Australia being one of China's largest trading partners. Yeah, coal and iron ore specifically, but also metals like copper and nickel. At the same time, ratings agency Moody's has downgraded Russia's credit rating to BAA2 from BAA1, citing poor growth prospects, the Ukraine crisis, and sanctions as well as capital flight. Russia's economy, Gary, has been hit hard by the fallout from the Ukraine crisis that's seen the EU and US pose the tarsh sanctions on Moscow since the end of the Cold War. And they've cut a raft of major Russian firms from key international debt markets. That's a tough ask because there's about $55 billion worth of loan repayments coming due by the end of the year. And capital flight from the country is rocketed and is set to reach $100 billion US this year. So this is bad news for Russia, Gary. That's right. And the oligarchs are probably getting on the plane to fly out as well. That's right. That's right. Now, in Australia, um, New South Wales has knocked off WA as the country's biggest economy. Why? Because mining investment is fading. And it's the first time New South Wales' top comsec quarterly state-of-state report since mid-2011. And the nation's most populous state rose from third place. It knocked WA into second, Northern Territory into third. It's ahead of Victoria, Queensland, South Australia, the ACT and Tasmania. And, of course, uh, those uh, Victoria particularly and Tasmania are the ones that have got a bit of a worry on. We've got uh, business credit applications. According to data credit data provider VADA, 
showing that Australia's economy might be growing at a faster clip than many are predicting because retailers and home builders are finally showing the confidence to expand and pushing business credit growth to its strongest level in over a year. They rose by 3.6% in September compared to a year ago, and that's the strongest since mid-2013, Gary. And a lot of that is fueled by uh, foreign investors. I mean, you look at some of the figures from uh, New South Wales and Victoria, and you're looking at 80, 80 to 90% of uh, accommodations owned by inner city accommodation owned by investors. That's right. And meanwhile, the uh, all indications are our interest rates are going to remain on hold because the headline price of Australian consumer goods and services printed slightly above forecast in September and at the lower end of the Reserve Bank of Australia's target band of 2 to 3% annual inflation. So the CPI data from the ABS uh, lifted by 0.5% in the three months of September, bringing the annual rate to 2.3%. Meanwhile, the likely pace of future economic growth fell in September, according to the Westpac Melbourne Institute leading index, and that down minus 1.6, minus 1.16% in September. That's compared with minus 1.07 in August. And that, to me, says, Gary, that interest rates will stay on hold. That's right. And one of the effects of this, of course, and not quite so good, is that in terms of real um, strength, uh, wages are dropping. That's right, and that's a big worry. Now, Fairfax Media has held high-level talks with Network 10 about a billion-dollar merger and the third-place free-to-air broadcast future comes into sharp focus. Now, Chief Executive Greg Highwood recently met 10 CEO Hamish McClellan at the Sydney offices of 10's advisor Citigroup. We understand Highwood was accompanied by the Chief Financial Officer David Housgo and the Chief Information Officer Andrew Lim Potang, and the parties engaged in exploratory talks about a merger which would create a $2.3 billion group with revenues of 2.5 Five billion. Now, Gary, I have to say, if Fairfax merged with 10, they would have to get rid of their radio business. Well, they did try to sell the radio business, Serie AW, and the rest of them about a year ago, didn't that's they? That's right, that's right. And the other issue, too, is that they're going to have to get the support of the four key shareholders who hold 40% of the stock, like mining magnate Gina Reinhardt, News Corp non-executive chairman Lachlan Murdoch, Crown Resorts chairman James Packer, and Wind Corporation owner Bruce Gorman, Gordon. And you wonder about Gina. I mean, she's got a big chunk of Fairfax, and uh, I think she might want to hold it um, in solo. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's just see how that goes. Gas bills... Uh, set to rise according to the Grattan Institute. Average households in most major cities can expect gas bills to soar by hundreds of dollars a year amid an emerging export industry. And the think tank's energy program director, Tony Wood, says the emergence of a liquefied natural gas export industry over the next five years, which is worth about $60 billion a year, is actually going to push prices up because Australians will be forced to compete in the international market for supplies. Yeah, they're about the only sort of ameliorating uh, factor is the American uh, coal seam gas industry. Yeah. Well, in Melbourne, where 90% of homes use gas for all their cookings, hot water and heating, an average bill could rise by as much as $435 a year. High gas users in Sydney face an increase of $225. A high users in Adelaide will pay an extra $200 a year. Yeah, 435 a year as an average across a city like Melbourne where unemployment isn't going to be uh, is right. going to be a big factor in the next few years uh, that's pretty difficult. That's right. And there was also some worrying news for the government. The uh, Parliamentary Budget Officer Phil Bowen said uh, there was a reasonably uncertain international aspect outlook that would affect the budget and there were significant risks to the federal budget from spending rises and revenue falls. Now, the government's projections show the budget will move from a deficit of 3.1% of GDP to a surplus of 1.4% of GDP in 2024-25. But Bowen would suggest 
that might not happen. You mean we've got to go out beyond a decade to get even level pegging? That's right. That isn't good. No, not at all. Now, uh, at the same time, the Assistant Governor of the Reserve Bank of Australia, Christopher Kent, is calling on Australians to work later into their lives to combat productivity loss associated with ageing populations. And he's saying it makes sense to have people work later into their lives to account for a productivity loss as the ageing population becomes less inclined to risk-taking and innovation. He says longer lifespans and longer working lives might result in people taking more risks with their careers. Yeah, well, that's a possibility. I mean, what what else are you going to do? Now, um, the corporate watchdog, ASIC, is targeting the financial advice industry in the year ahead. And it's, it says it's going to keep a close eye on the six largest financial advisors as well as operators of managed investment schemes for signs of illegal and risky behaviour. Australian Securities Investment Commission Chairman Greg Megcraft says Australia is a paradise, his words, paradise, in quote, for white-collar criminals. And he wants tighter regulation of financial services industry and greater funding for the commission. And he says existing penalties for white-collar crimes, particularly civil penalties, are just a slap on the risk that fail to install sufficient fear to deter offenders. Now, having said that, ASIC stood by while we had all this fraud and misconduct by planners at the Commonwealth Bank between 2010-6 and 2010, Gary. Yeah, that's right. And, and that that was pretty uh, pretty bad. And, and a measure of the government's sensitivity all this is that Matthias Corman rang up Medcraft after that speech and Medcraft then issued a statement saying we didn't mean it was a, a, um, a paradise right this minute but if we didn't do something it would be. Right, yes. So he backtracked a bit. Yeah, more weasel words. But, I mean, look, ASIC's been criticised for failing to deal with misconduct in the industry, and it's been slow to respond to whistleblowers. It's almost as if we're back in the days when, uh, you know, you always made a profit and didn't make a loss, and, and we got overconfident. Finally, this in the week that uh, Gough Whitlam died, and Gough Whitlam, of course, brought us Medibank, we got the privatisation of Medibank Private. Very big IPO. Finance Minister Matthias Cormann unveiled the prospectus in Melbourne. It says the federal government could reap over $5 billion from the privatisation. There's an indicative price range of between $155 to $2 a share. And it would um, put the market cap of Medibank Private at between $4.269 billion and $5.5 billion. And that would put it among the top 100 companies in the ASX, Gary. And like Telstra, I think there's going to be a very big mum and dad uh, element in the share purchase. The Office of Share is going to be open until, on October the 28th. The public will have until mid-November to apply. But the question is, would they? I mean, bear in mind how many people were burnt in the Telstra. Although the, I think the outlook for uh, Medibank is a good deal better. The biggest thing Medibank Private is going for it is its brand and its market dominance on the fact that it's not carrying any debt, although that might change if it goes on the acquisition trail. Something newly newly floated outfits uh, free to their government chains. Well, that happened with Telstra. And the record is mixed. I mean, Telstra botched its acquisitions. Um, uh, CBA proved to be street smart. Medibank makes only 3.6 on every dollar it gets in premiums compared with uh, NIB's 5 cents. So there'll be some slash and burn. Medibank will lower costs. And Medibank private managing director Sudros Savidis is going to be under pressure from investors to cut costs. So he'll be slashing management costs and reining in the amount Medibank Bank pays to health care providers. And I think, again, that is a better outlook than we had with Telstra. That's it, yes. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, what have we got on for next week? Well, we've got a terrific interview with Luke Checks from Naked Wines. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, a wine company doing something innovative. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBOZ or on Facebook. Take care and we'll talk to you next week.